On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. I, uh, I'm using a different mic because every time we do a Zoom, I'm way too loud, and I don't know that what... sounds good. I think it always sounds good, but it, for some reason, it always puts the hosts up too much, so I have it turned down here, so hopefully that helps. But I'm annoyed because I, uh, I got DoorDash from Applebee's, you know, because I'm a you know, wealthy American. Yeah. But I forgot I got some corned beef left over from last night. Mmm. Corned beef. There fucking be some left Ooh. in mom and dad's. There is none left, Bob. There better be. I ate all of it. I ate all of it at the top of the morning to you. You're going to get all of your Irish ass fucking beef if it's not allowed. Do all I- the fairies of the leprechauns took all the corned beef. Do Irish, okay, so Irish youngsters, do you guys, do people in Ireland eat corned beef or is that like an Americanized Irish thing? I, um, when I was in Ireland, uh, the only time I had corned beef was at what they call the Carvery Lunch. So you go to any, any decent pub in Ireland and they have a ham and a roast beef and like a corned beef. And huh. then they have all these like sides and it's like a, one of those buffets that they serve you and you just walk in there and... It's fucking awesome. I mean, I and, feel like uh, boiled boiled dinners are definitely a thing. A boiled dinner? Um, not so much. Not. I didn't run into a lot of that in Ireland. Didn't run into like boiled. Uh, that might be like a New England thing. Boiled dinner, into kid. Of, right into a lot of potatoes and stuff, but nothing like uh, the boiled dinner here. And uh, listen, you listen to the drop kicks. You eat a boiled dinner. You have a Guinness. You call it a fucking day. Okay, kid. Fuck that boiled dinner. It tastes like fucking my aunt's boiled dinner. Tastes like newspaper. <laughs> oh yeah, how was uh, who was who'd you have on from the drop kicks? Kicks, Mike. Kenny Casey. Oh nice. How yeah, was that? He's a good dude, man. He's he's good. I've known Kenny for years. We were uh, we were part of the only um, I guess you wouldn't call it a float, but the only guests of the uh, South Boston St. Patrick's Day parade that were kicked out midway through the parade. What? I think we're the only ones. We might be the only ones in history. We had the we had the Dropkick Murphys on the back of a flatbed truck, and they they were they would just play for the three hours we were in the parade. And uh, so they get on there. We turn the corner onto Broadway, and they start playing, and the crowd's just going sick. Now this is during you know you remember how before the pandemic the Dropkick Murphys would do like eight shows in a row. Yeah, the week of St. Patrick's Day. Um, so this was during that. And so when that happens, Dropkick Murphys fans from all over the world come into Boston to see those shows. It's like Yeah, they ship out to Boston. Yeah, that's right. They ship up to Boston. And uh, so there were, there were people, the, like Dropkick Murphys fans there from everywhere. And they just came out of the crowd and started walking along the side of the flatbed truck <laughs> and everything that entailed. You know, they were shit-faced. They were starting fights. They were throwing stuff. People were throwing things at them. Uh, and then about an hour into it, the riot police showed up and oh pushed them all back into the crowd and walked along the side of the truck. With They had these long dowels, you know, like these wooden sticks that they would beat people with. And they were just beating back the Dropkick Murphys fans. And the, the Murphys fans, there's this one guy from Cleveland. He had these amazing like mutton chop sideburns and 
he took a swing at a cop and he had four riot police beating him with these sticks. It was unbelievable. So I don't know if you guys ever saw the, the, the parade in Southie kind of goes in and then it turns around onto another main road. But during that turnaround, it goes through a couple of back streets. I assume I've never been, but I assume it just goes through people's backyards a- after a certain point. No, no, it's just it, it, the backstreet part. It's weird because it's really like a neighborhood that's just, they're just turning around. Mm. And so it's kind of disjointed and you take another street and then we turn a corner and there were the riot police standing in a line in two rows and a couple of cars and a paddy wagon blocking the street. They just came in out of nowhere. And so they stopped. We were in a truck ahead of the flatbed truck. So we stopped. Our promotions director gets out. He goes, what's, what's going on here? What, you know, what's happening? And the cop just says, looks at him. He just says, get the fuck out of here. And uh, the guy's name was Adam. He's like, what, what's the problem? He goes, you're just causing a fucking riot. It's been hell since you guys been into this fucking parade. Just keep like there was a, we had to take a right and they blocked that part. So he said, just fucking go straight and go the fuck home. And we were just like, oh, uh, okay, whatever. You know, you have big sticks and guns. And so we, we drive out there, and the band's still playing when we're talking, which was funny. Because yeah. the band's up there going, ah, dad, about it, you know. And, and uh, so we finally were going straight, and the band stops playing. And, and Kenny's like, what the fuck's going on? And like, they're kicking us out of the parade. And they all kind of, everybody was confused because it's never happened before. And so we get out to this other side street where we're finally out. They're unloading their stuff. I'm like, I'll see you later. I was going to go back to the T station uh, to go back to my car. And there were cops there. And I said, uh, I'm just going back to the T station. He goes, no, you're not. You're turning around. You're walking that way. They wouldn't have even let us anywhere near the parade route at all because they thought we would just try to get back into the parade. So I had to like take a cab, go like all the way around fucking through Dorchester. It was a fucking mess. It was, it was, it was one of the best St. Patrick's days I've ever had. Oh, I bet. Two, two things about that. One, if you're from Boston, New England, but Boston, especially none of this story surprises you at all. I'm sure. (laughs) I know. Right. (laughs) Um, And then two fucking, that's the coolest fucking story I've ever heard. <laughs> I never, we've never, we looked it up. We've never seen or heard anybody that was officially entered in the parade. There were people that kind of joined the parade. Yeah. You know, and then the, the officials called the cops and had them removed, but we were like officially signed up. We paid our fee. We had a place in line. Now they weren't having any more of it. Well, the, I, th- I think the coolest thing ever, because if you're from around here, you just know about, even if you've never been, you know about the, the St. Patrick's Day parade in Boston. And you yeah. like you hear a million stories about it. And and a lot of them a lot of them involve people, you know, puking and pissing themselves at nine in the morning. Yeah. That's all very thing. true. Like, That's all completely true. But so to get kicked out of a parade where this is the like this is the right? standard. <laughs> well we were caught impressive. It was just it was just it was like a tornado. We were just as we were moving along, it was just causing wreckage. Would you say it was people, would you say it was like a hurricane? No, oh, right. no, th- not at all. I wouldn't compare this at all to to Neil Young whatsoever. This was just a drunken brawl. Um, all right, I need like someone to tell a joke so I can like that that'll cut into the theme, and then when she gets and then here, I farted, and he said, "What the hell was that?" I don't know. That was perfect. The theme. I'd the- buy that for a dollar.
podcast that covers Neil Young's uh, catalog. It's musical output episode by episode. My name is Mike Shu, and along with Luke and Russ Condon from the band Town Meeting, uh, we do this every week and uh, we cover albums, but we also have guests on. And so today, uh, our guest on this particular episode is uh, Neil Young's sister, Astrid Young, who's got Ooh. a musical career of her own, but not only music. She is a writer and a painter and is did i see voice acting or voiceover work in there also astrid uh, i've done so actually it's funny you should say that because a friend of mine actually added that onto my profile it's not to, it's more what she does than what i do but she identifies with uh you know that we are very much the same kind of person so i guess she decided to uh you know outfit my profile with <laughs> with what she wishes I was. You know, we all do it. So. It's the internet. Who gives a shit? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Who knows what you can believe anyway, right? Um, well, so I want to start off by asking you a, a really uh, important question, a musical question. And you were involved in a project in 1993 with Blackthorn. And I want to know if you had oh, yeah. interaction with the singer Graham Bonnet, because he's one of my favorite singers of all time. Wow, yeah, he's really cool. And, you know, as uh, I'm, oh, how would I put this? Well, you know, I was really into heavy music um, through as my years and as still am, actually. Yeah. I mean, I still listen to King Gizzard and the Wizard Lizards, one of my favorite nice. bands. And I love Queens of the Stone Age, Kaya, stuff like that. So that's the kind of stuff I listen to just on, on an average day. Uh, but uh, yeah, Graham Bonnet is just such an amazing singer and still is, still is. I mean, he's just got such an incredible voice. And um, it just happened that we were you know, working in the same studio. So it was one of those things where he said, hey, you want to come and sing on this track? And I said, yeah, and there you go. So it, it, that, that's the kind of thing that happens when you're living in Los Angeles. You know, you run into people, just chance encounters and, and get to do some pretty cool things that you wouldn't even imagine. That's awesome. I am, I am also a fan of metal and, and, and uh, heavy music and uh, a lot of the stuff you just mentioned there. And but what I love about Graham Bonnet is not just his voice. He was one of the three, what I like to call the short-haired weirdo metal guys of the 80s. <laughs> with, uh, yeah, Udo, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Udo Dirk Schneider from Accept and uh, Rob Halford from Judas Priest. They, Especially Graham, because Graham dressed like he was a cast member of Miami Vice in the 80s. He didn't do the metal <laughs> he thing. He does. <laughs> he, yeah, he didn't wear leather and spikes. He had the aviator glasses and the slicked hair, blonde hair, and the Hawaiian shirt and blazer. But he belted it out like just he could keep up with the rest. So he didn't need to wear the leather and spikes. That's, why yeah, I, that's another reason why I love Graham. I have such a... He's oh, right up there with that, uh, with Paul Rogers to me, like in terms of Paul mm. Rogers and, and Graham Bonnet and Glenn Hughes, Ian mm. Gillen, you know, those are some of the best, best voices in rock as far as I'm concerned. And my biggest influences anyway, for sure. 
Well, you know what? Forget the whole Neil Young thing. Let's just talk metal for the next hour. Because <laughs> I'm actually I'm actually okay with that. And I'll tell you why. Because I always feel like I know a lot about music. I get on my high horse often. And then anytime I talk to Mike about anything, he knows at least five people who I've never heard of. And then I feel way <laughs> inferior. <laughs> it's definitely a way to differentiate yourself. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, you're you you started in music pretty young. Uh, the story goes, and this is where the internet comes in. We got a fact check. Is when uh, your brother Neil gave you an amplifier. I think that first. was about her friend. I don't think that was about Astro. Oh, that wasn't about her. <laughs> yeah, no. I think her friend put that. <laughs> just oh yeah, that's right. Her friend wanted her history to be. Yeah, her her <laughs> friend wanted that to be the story. <laughs> well, yeah, no. Actually, he did give me an amplifier, but my my music, uh, my journey in music started a lot before that. Like, uh, I think my parents had me in music lessons when I was a toddler. So like I could actually read music before I could read like books. And, uh, you know, I mean, as at that age, you really can't do much. Your dexterity is not very good. So they have you playing like triangles and tambourines and stuff like that. But, you know, reading the rhythmic values of music and that's, you know, where my roots came in. And then when I started playing, um, I started playing piano when I was about six and uh, then I ventured into classical music and played flute and eventually oboe and English horn, which were my main cool. instruments up until I was about 18. So I was really, really deep in the classical world for a long time. And, and to be quite honest, up until I was about, you know, up until I discovered Black Sabbath, I thought that uh, most uh, music with vocals was boring you know I was more into orchestral stuff and I was into like heavy bombastic stuff too like uh Rimsky-Korsakov and Stravinsky and uh, Tchaikovsky and stuff like that all the great Russian composers and I still am and I think I still bring a lot of those influences into the music that I write today and uh you know the reason that I like Black Sabbath so much too especially in the kind of mid-era, like sabotage era, stuff like that, uh, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. It was, it was, it had a lot of like classical orchestral um, overtones to it. And, uh, and I thought, wow, this is just incredible uh, that you can translate this music. And it's like, you know, most people wouldn't really see it as similar, but you'd be surprised at, uh, at, at some of the parallels with it. Anyway, that's that's kind of how I got into rock and roll. And then it's true, Neil did give me an amp, and I think uh, might have been around 14 or 15. I was just starting to play guitar at that point. And, uh, yeah, so I tortured my neighbors with that amp for <laughs> a couple of years. I think I spent about a year and a half trying to learn, like, you know, Alvin Lee solos and, uh, and um, – Oh, yeah. You know, and Richie Blackmore licks and stuff like that. So, yeah. <laughs> do you, so do you still uh, dabble with the, the horns and the orchestral stuff today? Are you still playing some of those instruments? I, you know, I, um, I don't. I play, still play flute. Uh, yeah. And I play various different instruments. But, you know, I tried to um, dive back into oboe again at one point, And I just don't have the embouchure for it anymore. And I don't have the time. I mean, that's an instrument that, you know, any double reed instrument takes a lot of commitment. And yeah. uh, it's, uh, you know, I just didn't really have the, uh, 
the energy or the focus to do it at that time. But I was I was uh, working for an orchestra contractor in Los Angeles, and she's the one that suggested it to me. She goes, you know, if you you know get your chops up, she goes, I could probably get you a lot of work. And I thought, okay, I'll give that a go. But it just you know it just didn't work out. So. <laughs> <laughs> which is okay. You know, I mean, yeah. I, there, there's so many other things that I do and, uh, um, you know, I never really even considered myself to be a singer because I have always been focused on, uh, on instrumental music and, and various instruments that I play. Um, you know, so when I moved to Los Angeles, I, I actually just showed up there with like five bucks in my pocket. You know, I didn't have any instruments or anything. And then I ended up singing in a metal band, which was just so far outside of what I had envisioned for myself, but, mm. but there it was. And then I started thinking, well, Hey, this is great. I don't have to carry any gear. I can just show up, you know, yeah. I don't, ha- I don't need That's to like- singer attitude. It really is here. Don't even help break down the drums, you know. Mike, to be fair, to be fair, no, I see no it one is more of a realization, it. you know, myself. Anyway, <laughs> Astrid, I'm I'm fascinated that you you're saying you don't consider yourself a singer because one of the things that I'm really happy about that we're interviewing you is I had never listened to One Night at Giant Rock before, which is your album that came out in 2014. And oh my God, it is refreshingly good. I listened to it five or six times over the past week and loved it more each time. And I, uh, I don't know, I'm really glad that I kind of discovered you have like kind of a, like a, like a Jenny Lewis, Rilo Kylie vibe who I really love. Oh, and, that's so nice to say. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's super dynamic. I mean, starting with like a little bit more stripped down and then kind of with try this coming right into a real fun tune. And, uh, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed it. So I, I hope you keep making music. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up the orchestral um, thing too, because a lot of, I was wondering with a lot of those arrangements in that, in that album, there has that kind of a vibe where you can feel now that you say that it makes a lot of sense listening to the album. Like, yeah, this does have a, just in its energy, there's an orchestralness to it that, that really shines through in in a really powerful and, um, interesting way. I really like it. And Integratron got me right, right off the bat. I oh, love yeah, that it's a great song. It's uh it's, it's kind of meant to do that. It's meant to be a bit of a roller coaster ride. Um, you know, like Integratron is just so dry and in your face and very personal and it kind of draws you in closer. And then I just go, wham, you know, mm, you get mm. them with, with try this, you know, because you think, okay, well, this is what the record's going to be about. And then I completely turn it around. Right. And, uh, you know, I, to me, um, you know, the art of making a record is, uh, is just as important as the actual songwriting itself. It's like how you sequence the record, what kind of a journey you want the listener to go on, um, you know, the the range of emotions that you're that you're pulling there. Um, I really like cohesive albums that kind of tell a story from beginning to end. And I'm kind mm. of of that era where, you know, you, you put on a record and you listen to it from beginning to end. I think now things are just so focused on on songs and singles and stuff like that, that you, you lose that, you lose that immersive kind of journey. And, uh, you know, it's just like, I figure if I have somebody's attention for five minutes, why not try to grab it yeah. for like, you know, 45, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's, kind of, I mean, that's the thing that draws us 
to, I mean, at least me and Russ for our band that drew us to Neil in the first place, which you can really hear the cohesiveness and also kind of, you hear when he means it. And so when I was listening to this album, you hear it the whole time. And then the last song, I think it's called Amy's song. It like, it really like kind of grabs you in the gut. And it's this really kind of, uh, it's an earworm, first of all. And it's just this beautiful song. And it's, I don't know, I just... I just, I really like that album. You gave me chills. Yeah. Amy's song's really special song to me because I have a, a, one of my best friends, um, her name is Amy and she passed away Uh going back now, probably um, about 12 years or so. And uh, I wrote that song on the day that she passed. Oh, wow. Kind of about, about our friendship and about things that we talked about and things that we did. And um, it's uh, really unfortunate that right now her husband, Jimmy, who is um, also one of my best friends is going through uh, uh, treatment for pancreatic cancer. Oh, and uh, that's my current m- musical project as I'm working with um, some of his very, very good friends and we're putting together an album covering his songs. And uh, you know, that it, it, it's, it's just, um, it's a sad irony in a way uh, that that music is involved in in uh, in both these people's memories, uh, you know, that I have of them. And uh, and uh, anyway, it, you know, Amy's song is really special to me. And I. I uh... Remember when the valley used to be really you know a lot of people listen to it and go well I don't really get why it's called Amy's song why isn't it called San Fernando Shoreline or whatever it's like well you know there's a story behind it but you can really make up your own meaning to mm. you know whatever floats your boat it doesn't right, matter yeah. it's a very personal song to me yeah it's always fascinating no, to me when, when people comment on a piece of art and say I don't know why this and it's like this is art that I made why do you need to know anything about how it was created? Like, does it affect you at all? If if so, great, because that was the intention. That's so. right. That and that's what art is all about. Like, um, you know, art has two components. There's uh, the creation of it, which is where the 
art actually exists. And then there's the interpretation of it. And the interpretation is just as important. And, you know, some artists will, will disagree with me um, because they are, you know, so focused on what the art should mean or how, you know, it, it's almost like a winemaker. Like I'm in the wine business too. So I get this a lot, you know, okay. you talk to, you, you describe a wine and then the winemaker turns around and said, no, those flavors aren't in there. You, sh you should be getting mm. this and this and this. And it's just like, well, yeah, but I'm getting that, you know? Right. So I trust my nose. I'm mm. not going to just say that it tastes like that or it has those aromas just because you say so. But art is the same way. Um, yeah. and, I, and I think that really the beauty of it is, is in the interpretation and how it makes you feel. Because, I mean, you've probably had this before too, where you, you love a song and you think you know what it's about and then you find out what it's really about and you go, ah, yeah. yeah oh my god so many times yeah. especially I, I especially on this podcast better you know yeah yeah i don't want to well, it for anybody yeah it's a <laughs> it's also a, a a strange thing to even when I, even when you're told what a you know a quote unquote a song is about i feel like it's not that too you know because as as a songwriter you you kind of think you know what it's about and then sometimes when you're in the process of writing you just end up saying, you just write things and then you think you kind of look back and, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm on, maybe no, I'm way, I, I agree way with off you. here, but I feel like sometimes you set out with an intention. Other times you don't, the muse just whatever, but then you write a song, you create a piece, whatever it might be. And then you kind of in retrospect are like, oh, I can see that this sort of seems like I was saying this, but you didn't even really know it at the time. It just happened, you know? It's just, a ha it's just a happening. And, then, and sometimes it shifts too. Like right. after, after five or six years, you're like, I, I wrote it with this intention, but now I see this whole other thing, which I, I don't know. I, I love songs. Yeah. I love music. No, that's that's, that's happened of... to me before. I've got this one song on, on uh, giant rock called happy. And mm -hmm. uh, it was, um, it was basically cobbled together over, <laughs> over a period of years. I mean, I think I rewrote the melody and the lyrics so many times mm -hmm. that by the time I finished the song, I didn't even know, you know, <laughs> it didn't really even mean anything to me. It just, cause it always seemed like it was, um, it was uh, just kind of slapped together like a, you know, a house of cards in a way, I guess. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, Sometimes the song is, is just kind of doing it. You know, it's just, it, the song is its own thing. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, thinking that you have control over it sometimes is the worst thing you can do. I also, know? I also right. love love the process. Like, uh, so when me and Russ write, a lot of times, sometimes we'll work for one. We'll have a song idea and we'll work on it for years. Like we have this song called "All the Bars" and it's a fun song, but Russ kind of came up with this melody and it took us two or three years to kind of finalize it. And uh, and it's a fun song. I like it, but then. Sometimes you're you're just together with people who you admire and who you like to write with, and then a song just comes out of nowhere and it's done in like 25 yeah. minutes. And I just I like the dynamic of both of those. And I I don't know. I just think it's. Funny. Yeah, I know. I agree. I agree. And I think that every it's like you know visual art or music or any anything that you create. I think it, it's um you, you need to respect the muse and, yeah. and what it's uh, what it's saying to you. And sometimes it you know, requires a little bit more, uh, thought, you know, um, mm. you know, I, uh, 
it's it's funny because you can work on something and work on something and work on something and think it's never going to be done but like you said right. you know sometimes it'll just come to you all at once and you go bam you know yeah, there it is i can't spontaneous. think of anything else i want yeah. to do to it and if you could um, and if you tried to plan it it wouldn't have happened Exactly. Right. And then I have a, a weird question for you as well, along the lines of muse and art coming from wherever. Uh, a vibe I get from the paintings I found of yours, because did you also do the artwork for One Night at Giant Rock? Um, actually, well, yes and no. I mean, okay. I did the design for the yeah. cover and stuff like that, but all the uh, photography was done by a guy named Jim Metzger, okay. uh, who... Um, He's really interesting. I've never met the guy. And uh, he, I was looking for photographs of the Mojave Desert and uh, I spent a lot of time out there when I was living in California, I kept horses out there. And, and I just love it, just the area around Joshua Tree and, mm. and Yucca Valley and whatnot. Uh, so I was looking for a, uh, some photographs to use from down there. And I came across this guy's like, he's just an amateur photographer you know, but it just really captured the essence of what I was looking for. And so we got to talking and he's a retired military guy and uh, he just does this as a hobby. He's not a professional. He just loves to do it and cool. uh, would not take a dime from me hmm. for doing yeah. this. He was just happy to be involved and stuff. So wow. it, it was, it was a great <laughs> collaboration. It was, uh, I mean, he basically gave me license to do whatever I wanted with his, with his photographs. Yeah. So nice. most of them are like, I think in the inner, uh, like when you open up the, um, the CD, you probably don't have that there, but, uh, there's, um, you know, what? I did composite. What's uh, a CD? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Crazy, isn't it? Um, but, uh, I did some composites of uh, a few of his photos and it's really yeah. kind of spooky. Um, I'll send well, you, I'll send you a file. So yeah, nice. I, well, the weird part of my question was that I may this may be strange, and I don't know, but the some of the vibes I was getting between that visual aspect of it, and then just some of the energy and lyric stuff, it felt very like extraterrestrial. Yeah, is that is that okay. my, is that cool to say? Which Trump, I fucking okay. love. Well, okay, so I don't know if you know the story of the Integratron, but uh, it, it, it's this kind of. Um, looks like a little silo and it's out in the middle of the desert, like really in the middle of nowhere near Landers. And uh, uh, the guy that built it, George Van Tassel is, um, he claims that he got the, the schematics to build it from aliens as he was abducted huh. by aliens and they took him on a ship on the ship oh. and, and they gave him the schematics to make this thing and it's supposed to um it's supposed to rejuvenate human cellular growth and it cool. was also being used for experiments and time travel so uh george was uh he was an interesting That's fella awesome. and he actually died under mis very mysterious circumstances back in the i think in the late 60s um and it's gone through various uh ownerships since then and now these two ladies own it and uh they run these sound baths they do these uh anyway you you, you pay and you go and you lie yeah and they i think i know about they like do yeah. all these sounds yeah. 
around you. Exactly. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wasn't <laughs> off by saying that there was a very. <laughs> oh no, cool. you you were yeah. you were right on the money there. Oh, the cool. YouTube the YouTube rabbit hole I'm gonna go down tonight researching all this. Yeah, stuff. The yeah. Oh, yeah, the integratron. Oh yeah, the integratron. You definitely cool. captured it then. That's 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 well, really awesome. Even Giant Rock, I've n- I've never been, but I, just like so, I looked up Giant Rock. Obviously, you mentioned it in the song that the, the first track but uh i looked it up it it looks pretty fascinating and it looks it's just this huge rock in the middle of the desert isn't it like this yep. monster rock That's right massive boulder yeah cool but there I mean, used you... to be there used to be this guy he was a um actually a friend of george george van tassel but they, i think his last name was Kreider. but he had dug this uh this crater underneath the rock and he was living under it and he huh. had this little restaurant there called the <laughs> come on in Literally this is a real this is a real so story. Different. Fly in there to eat his pie and <laughs> it was and they have UFO conventions. To this day they still have UFO conventions out there. Uh-huh. I mean there's a lot of kind of X-Files activity in the area. It's very uh it's it's kind of it, it's hard to describe unless you've been there. I yeah, mean I gotta the go there. in that area has this vibe that is so heavy and so um yeah. intense. You I know. love that. I love we need that. to we need I to went, make um, a podcast road trip out there. I think. Yeah. Oh, you definitely need to. What I want to say, camping, Mike. Um, I went camping out there. Uh, I want to say, geez, it's almost been twenty years now. There was a phone booth in the middle of the desert, <laughs> um, and like a lot of people were calling it and stuff. So I worked huh. for a radio station WAF, and we organized this trip. A couple of DJs, we just went out there and. We would document our trip going out there in pictures and video. We we're working with a TV station. We get out there and there's people from all over the world calling this phone booth. But yeah, the desert has a completely different vibe to it. There's a lot of weirdness out there. We met this guy who was living in these like series of berms. They were just mounds in the desert and <laughs> with doors in them. And you'd go in and there's like this full on, you know, living space. Like he had a library in one. What was in another, but they were all separate, like the like, like a hobbit kind of kind of like that, yeah. But you, you couldn't even tell, like, there was any, it, they just looked like you know, mounds. In the, like, well, the, the desert the kind of attracts people like that. Oh, yeah, it was great, I got a lot of stories about you know, stuff that happened out there, it's, it's pretty neat, and uh. It was just out there, like actually, not a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, it still holds the same allure for me, and it's a big reason why. I, well, actually, I was going to call the record Integratron, but the ladies that own the Integratron told me I couldn't huh. because they have a trademark on the name and they make uh, music CDs too. So their lawyer uh, told them uh, to call me no. But she said to me, uh, she goes, Well, don't feel bad. I had to say no to Robert Plant too. <laughs> wow, you're in good company then. That's. So then I said, okay, well, now I got to think of another name for, for the record. And uh, it's a line in, in the song Integratron, uh, One Night at Giant Rock. So I just mm. decided to use that. And I actually have a, have a song called One Night at Giant Rock that didn't actually make it onto the record. So that I'm planning to put that one on the next record just to confuse people. Uh, nice. And uh, getting back into a both thing. Um, when I do make that record, it's going to be called Spaceship Calling. So, awesome. Cool. Oh, or yeah. you could do the Neil thing and record it and then release it 30 years from now, which is a... <laughs> he's been There's doing. no time limits, man. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, it's, it, it'll be done when it's done. 
Yeah. Mm. So one of the things probably something that my brother would say. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> one of the things I really wanted to uh, talk to you about since we started doing this podcast, I I was you know a Neil fan and just in the way that I think anyone would be, and I I liked a lot of his stuff. I grew up really liking you know the band Levon Helm was a big idol of mine, and and as a drummer singer of course, but also just uh, the last waltz I really liked when I was a kid. My dad showed me that and. I fell in love with Neil there. And then, so it was just kind of a basic sort of Neil thing. And then once we started doing this podcast and we were going album by album and once we got to harvest and then from that point on, I fell, you can ask these guys like hard. Oh, here we go. Here we with, go. With Ben Keith. It's going to get weird. Ash. I get weird. So in love with Ben Keith. And I think Ben Keith is one of the most underrated geniuses, musical geniuses. I think he is, one of the main reasons why Neil is. How do you really feel, Russ? I I, just felt, I love Ben Keith so much. And so then doing the research, I realized you were on Ben Keith's Christmas album. And not only that, but you were on the Johnny Cash drummer boy tune. So I was like, holy shit, Astrid, that's amazing. So I I definitely wanted to hear about the Ben Keith. Yeah, that was, I totally agree with you where, uh, you know, what you're saying about, about long grain and I know that Neil would concur on that too. I mean, that was uh, actually um, Ben and Neil got introduced in Nashville by Mm -hmm. Elliot Mazur just before the Harvest Records. So that kind of really kicked off an era for him Mm -hmm. and they were best friends right up until the end. I think Ben was actually living on the ranch when he died. So yeah, that's that's what I saw. And, and for people, for I'm the listeners who don't know, Long Grain is what is what Neil called Ben. Yeah. 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 But what were that you saying, Astrid? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, what was that? Well, they called, that actually came from, you know, they called him Uncle Ben and then it went to Long Grain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I never made that connection until yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I get it. Now you know. <laughs> Takes me it a while. Seemed, it seemed like Neil was, uh, you know, to me anyway, you would know better, obviously, but he didn't trust a lot of people when it came to making his music. But with Ben Keith, he put a lot of trust into him. Yeah, and that's for sure. What was it about Ben, do you think, that besides being an amazing musician, what was it about him, do you think, that garnered that trust? Well, I think it's, it's um, you know, probably the same as it is for any other musician that you play with uh, that you have like an intense musical chemistry with, you know, Um, like you play with them and you lock in and you look at each other and you have this almost telepathic feeling of the music and the music is actually outside of, of of who you are as a person. It becomes this, Mm. this other thing. Uh, And, um, and I know that's what he had with Ben and there's been various other musicians along the way that he's had the same kind of relationship with, um, you know, and and people other than musicians as well, you know, but uh, but I think that was, um, I mean, when you find that, that's like the holy grail of musicianship. Mm. Doesn't matter whether it's, uh, you know, a drummer, bass player, singer, whatever, you know, when you have that thing, you just have to do everything in your power to make sure that it, you know, you feed it and it doesn't go away. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And, and so Ben, worked on um uh harvest moon as as well as you yeah and what were those sessions like because um 
you know, from all I've read, those, a lot of people said those were just really, it was a really a great time that it was, the vibe was really good yeah. and that people were getting along. What, what was it about those sessions that made them so special? I, it, it was really relaxed, you know, and it, I mean, the way Neil records is, um, is very relaxed as well. You know, I mean, this, this studio kind of looks like a living room and it's out in the middle of the Redwoods. And so it's really cool to just be there. And the vibe is very, is very mellow. And, uh, you know, I, I think they all just clicked at that time. Um, you know, Kenny and, and Tim and, and Ben and Neil. And uh, yeah, I mean, once they had a group going there, there was no stopping them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the great thing was, you know, he was able to pull in um, most of the people that actually worked on the on the Harvest record as well. So that was pretty cool. I was, me and Nicolette were the only newcomers, really. Every, everybody right. else had, had actually played on Harvest. So it was, uh, you know, Jack Nietzsche, uh, James Taylor, Linda Ronstad, um, you know, and all the rest of the guys. So mm. it, it was, a, it was, it was a legacy coming around again. And, you know, you, you can try to orchestrate these things and it, and it doesn't work if you try too hard. And sometimes it just happens naturally. And I'm just really, I feel really blessed to have been a part of that album because it was a very special album. Mm. And uh, it was also the first time I had worked with my brother directly. So, so it holds a special place in my heart and, uh, you know, uh, a lot of fear stemming from that, you know, first couple of sessions too. So it's like, oh my God, what am I doing here? <laughs> so was that, was this a change of pace for you? Cause you were doing more like kind of heavier, yeah. like metal stuff up into this. So did, did you, have you always appreciated that kind of a uh, more acoustic vibe or was this kind of a, a little bit of a change of pace for you? Well, it was a total change of pace. I mean, I'd been in rock bands in Los Angeles and playing on the Sunset Strip and I had big hair and blah, 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 you know, <laughs> That's so awesome that was my, kind of my thing. But, you know, um, we had, I had almost done a couple of things with Neil, not directly, but uh, we were, he was going to do this little tour and my band was going to open up for him uh, it, dates didn't happen and stuff like that. So, but, it was a period where I was doing a lot of recording and, and of course I am always uh, interested in his feedback. So I would send him the stuff that I was doing and he was kind of telling me what he liked about it and things like that. And so um, I certainly didn't anticipate him asking me to sing on this record, but uh, you know, I mean, pretty fucking cool. Know, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's awesome. Oh God, no. Why would I do that? You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. With uh, Nicolette Larson, I mean, that, um, you know, talk about another really talented person. What, what was that like? Oh, she's amazing. And uh, she was so sweet. And she really took me under her wing as a background singer and basically taught me everything I knew. And, uh, you know, I really relied on her for a lot of things. But uh, she pushed me farther than I ever thought I could go. You know, there was... Uh, moments when uh, especially with unplugged which happened like right after harvest moon yeah. and uh so we're standing there together and actually neil had completely changed the set list and right before the show um <laughs> doesn't always happen but you know you can never tell with him so i'm looking at it going we never rehearsed that song or that song and she's going oh don't worry about it it's easy it's easy and i'm thinking i don't I could do this you know but if you look at the unplugged video you'll see I, I don't know if 
if it was Long May You Run or might have been another song. But uh, when they cut to us, we're just coming back to our mic. So she would just lean over and she would sing my part in my ear and then go back to her mic, right? So, and we were doing this. <laughs> we did two or three songs, right? And it worked out fine, but, you know, it's like, you wouldn't know what was going no, on. No one would, yeah. On. <laughs> no one would have any idea. It came out awesome. According oh, to yeah. The, the yeah. Jimmy McDonough's book, Shaky, I don't know if you're familiar with that book. Oh, but, yeah, yeah. I okay, so uh, he he described it, or from what other people described it, as a really tense experience doing the unplugged gigs. Like the New York ones broke down. Neil actually... Yeah literally ran out of the building um and then the la ones you know with the changing of the songs it caused a lot of conflict with the with the people in the band and we recently did an episode on that album we love that album and it, it sounds so great it's it doesn't sound like that was the case i mean did do you see that experience oh god well I, you know it there was there was some shit going on um, at the time. Like the first unplugged was, uh, um, you know, Neil was sick, so it almost didn't even happen. We were in the, you know, we were in the limo on the way to the airport and we got the call that the gig was off, right? So it's like me and Drummond and Nicolette in the, in, in the, in the car, you know, and we're going, okay, well, we got the car, let's go, let's go have some Mexican food. So we were going to this restaurant, we we're gonna have lunch didn't even park the car. It's just like, okay, the gig's back on. And we were on our way to the airport again. And so we did it. And, um, you know, the, uh, the sound check was great. It was amazing. It sounded so good and so sweet, but the problem was, and you know, this as a live performer that you don't want to sound check when you know that there's going to be another band after you mm -hmm. and that they're going to have to pull down all your settings and then set yeah. them back up. Well, that's exactly what happened. So we <laughs> were in Ed Sullivan theater the, the night before and uh, we had a great rehearsal. And then Katie Lang was coming in the next day to do her unplugged. And so they had to rip everything down and then put it back up for us. And by the time we got back in there, not only Neil wasn't Neil was under the weather anyway, but it sounded like crap and it sounded completely different than oh. it did the night before. So he just couldn't get comfortable and he kept stopping and starting songs and oh. and, uh, and stuff like that. So he actually, uh, you know, he buried that that. Uh, <laughs> that show, you know, mm -hmm. it's never going to see the light of day. But the one that we did in Los Angeles was really good, except that we had this little, uh, I can talk about this because most of the people involved aren't around anymore. Uh, okay, so um, the reason for the tension, uh, you know, and the set change and everything like that, Neil was really, really pissed off. Um, and uh, what had happened was before the gig, we were all sitting in the dressing room and um, Kenny Buttry and Tim Drummond come marching in and said, we think we should be getting more money and uh, we want you guys to band together with us and we're going to demand more money uh, from Neil because, you know, when I was working with Eric Clapton, we got paid this much and Ugh. blah, blah, blah. So this is Drummond talking, right? And Kenny's kind of standing behind him going, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, so, uh, you know, I kind of went, I don't want to have any part of this. And Nicolette said, you know what? I'm kind of okay with what I'm making. So off they went, you know, and then we broke, we took a break and, and went for dinner. And I went to dinner with Neil and Elliot 
and David Briggs, and we're sitting there talking about, um, I don't know, Drummond came up and I said, yeah, you wouldn't believe what they did just a couple of hours ago. They came into the dressing room and I relayed the whole story. I laid it out and you should have seen all the jaws dropped at the table, right? <laughs> Elliot got up, walked away from the table, got on the phone immediately. And then by the time we got back to the gig, Neil was just, he was fuming. I mean, you oh. could see the steam coming out of his ears and he just let them all have it, right? Uh, and, uh, and Drummond. And, um, and so... Then we got the set change, right? Which kind of eliminated the band during the first set completely because originally we were all playing on every uh, song, right? Oh, and then wow. he changed the set. So he did the, the first half of the show uh, acoustic and then the second half of the show with the band. And, uh, but, you know, here's another little moment that you can look at the video and uh, it, it's specifically in, um, uh, I think it was... Uh, look out for my love and uh, he's going along and he says da, 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 but you can't feel it and then he's got this look on his face he turns around he looks at Drummond and Drummond's like looking at the floor wouldn't look at it look him in the eye you know and both him and Buttry are kind of looking down and uh, oh man it's just like if daggers could kill you would not believe it and oh man that was, that was the last time that Drummond worked with Neil at all uh, oh and, wow <laughs> what Mike was 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 Tim the one who caused the whole time fades away thing too? I believe was, that was uh, and it was I the think, same exact I'm, issue, wasn't it? I'm yeah. speculating that's why he was so Neil was so angry because he had yeah. done, he done it he had done it before. Done yeah. it before, and yeah. you know, here's the thing though. Um, Tim was married to this woman Inez, and for years, like you know, thirty some odd years or something like that, they were married like since they were kids, and. Uh, Inez was very outspoken, very in your face, very vocal. And she's the one that used to march into offices and demand more money for Tim. So everybody yeah. just assumed it was Inez, right? Mm. And then so when he did this himself a couple of times, this after right. him and Inez had broken up at some point, and then he started doing it and everybody's going, oh, okay, so this is where it's coming from. This is not because of Inez, right? right, right. Oh, wow. So yeah, it, and it's unfortunate because he shot himself in the foot at mm. that point. It's just like, oh man. It, and like, for me, I mean, I, I felt really bad for blowing up the whole thing. And it was a little bit of naivety on my part. But then when you think about it, it's just like, why are you marching in here and, and selling your manifesto to your boss's sister? Mm. You know, yeah. it's like, how it's do you weird. think that's going to yeah. go? Yeah. It's <laughs> bizarre. It's so weird. It's so weird. And why are you doing it like right before you guys are supposed to play? You yeah. Know, really, you know, you're ruining the, but you know, again, like I said, we, we covered this, the Unplugged album and it just sounds so great. And you can't even imagine, and I read that stuff in Shaky and I'm like, it just really doesn't sound like yeah. there was all that stuff going down. I, I feel like the reason it didn't is just because of, like you guys and and like probably Nils and Ben too because I can't imagine them being too much of a pain in the ass. We yeah. interviewed we interviewed Nils, Nils is so cool and yeah so he was the, one of our favorite. We interviewed he was our first him. guest. Yeah. yeah, and he was amazing. He was the sweetest guy we've ever talked to. He was incredible. I love Nils. Um, we do too. A, a real quick total side note on the when you first started talking about this, it and I Russ, I'm sure this happened when she was talking about sound. Shout out to all the sound guys who make it look easy and who 
and who do it the right way. Sound people. Sound people, sorry. Sound people. But because when you get a bad sound person, it's the only show you remember for two or three years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That's, that's true. true. Yeah. yeah. But, but the people who do it right, you, you're a gift from God, and you know who you are, and we love you. Yes, so. I agree. I agree. I mean, playing on big stages especially, you, you, you have to trust that the front of house is going to be great. Uh, you know, because you can't really hear what it sounds like out there. Uh, but your monitor guy is like, God, yeah. you know, it's, I, I, I can't tell you the value of having a good monitor person. Oh know, my God. Yeah, we, so many times where you can't hear anything else and you depend on that person. Uh-huh. For, yeah. Luke and I have been there many times. Yeah. So many times. And th- shout out to the monitor guy at the bull run. I've already forgot your name. What's his name? Russ? Alex. Yeah. Alex. Great. Yeah. Great fucking guy. Astrid, um, we're going to wrap up here soon, but um, I I wonder if I could get your impressions on David Briggs because we've gotten several different impressions on David Briggs, some very good, some not good at all, Um, (laughs) and then some that were kind of, you know, some just weird experiences. But did you work with him directly at all? Did you interact with him? And how how did he treat you? What kind of experience was that? Well, you have to understand with any of these people, I've known them since I was a child, like since I was, you know, in some cases, since I was, you know, maybe five or six years old, most of them since I was around nine or 10, because that's when I started hanging out at the ranch and stuff like that. But, but I've known Briggs that long and uh, he's always treated me like, like a part of the family and, uh, you know, everybody has their quirks and stuff like that. And, and I, I could never... I, I have a lot of respect for David Briggs's body of work because, you know, he's worked with a lot of people other than Neil, you know, I mean, uh, most famously, uh, he made Alice Cooper's first two records, mm-hmm. uh, you know, before the big one, unfortunately, but uh, it, it shows that he, he has the ears and he has the vision and uh, he definitely wasn't afraid to take chances. Um, you know, I've also had some weird experiences with Briggs, you know, we've had to leave him on the road a couple of times because he just you know, went off the rails and he would have fights with Neil and they wouldn't talk for years. And, uh, you know, he, he kind of, it was the same thing with crazy horse, you know, it would be yeah. like back and forth. It's just like, okay, I can't deal with this anymore, you know? And then he wouldn't talk to him for a few years. And then it's just like, okay, well, but we're family, you know, so we need to get this back together again. But, uh, one of the, you know, I, one of the things that I noticed about Briggs, uh, probably, you know, I would say in my twenties or thirties and I was just kind of watching his modus operandi and how he dealt with Neil. Cause uh, there was, there's a lot of people that would probably say um, why, you know, why was he so important to Neil? Um, you know, he really doesn't have the same level of expertise and chops that some of his other producers have, you know, but David had, and, and this, I don't know, you can take this any way, any way you want. Um, David had this remarkable ability to listen and he would listen to what Neil had to say. And then about 20 minutes later, he would regurgitate it back to him. And then Neil would think it was Briggs's idea. So that's kind of like <laughs> what their relationship was based on. Hmm. But, you know, um, in, in a broader sense, you know, cause that's the nuts and bolts of it. But in the broader sense, David was actually able to take Neil's ideas and facilitate them and make them happen, um, which is very much what Elliot did for the rest of his career. 
uh, you know, he basically uh, gave Neil an environment to create in um, freely. And uh, Elliot Mazur? David did that too. Oh, no, Elliot, Elliot Mazur? I think you're talking Elliot about Elliot Roberts. Elliot Roberts. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he always called him the best manager in the world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I know. I miss him. It's hard to believe he's gone. Yeah. And Mazer just recently passed away. Yeah, I know. That's really sad. And, you know, I saw him a couple of years ago and I, I had no idea that he was dealing with dementia. Um, mm. But, uh, you know, that, that can tend to take you really fast. But, you know, the fortunate thing about Mazer, I heard, is that he was laughing when he died <laughs> and he was watching the Super Bowl. Awesome. So, oh, that's awesome. It's fucking cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, um, it's, oh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Luke. No, I was going to ask a really dumb question, so it doesn't really matter. Oh, no, go ahead. Let's hear the dumb question. Well, I was going to say, Neil is referred to as the godfather of grunge. Uh, Astrid, are you upset that you're not referred to as the godmother of glam rock? <laughs> I literally had that written down. So. Oh, God, that would be quite a dubious... Uh, <laughs> and uh, then I wanted to get into what even is glam rock, because I'm, Mike is very familiar, but I feel like I don't really know very much about what that is, but... Uh, we can, yeah. that, we can well, save that for another podcast if you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably best to do that. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I always like to think that you know my brother in the in the in the greater firmament of rock and roll is is very godlike, which uh, makes me the sister of God. So there you good. go. Nice. Not a bad place to be. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Astrid Young, thank you so much for uh, joining us here on Long May You Young. Um, you said you were working on some new music these days, so hopefully we'll we'll hear that soon. Mm. Um, I hope so too. I, I uh, the guy that I produced um, uh, one night at Giant Rock with uh, Victor Di Lorenzo, who was the yeah. original drummer in the Violent Femmes, yeah. founding member. Anyway, we're going to be working together again, awesome. and uh, we've already been kind of scheming up some ideas and awesome. hopefully Great. finish That's up some awesome. of the songs that we didn't put on Giant Rock. So, and then you also have the the book Being Young which people yep. can can get yep. that. Yes. Okay. So the book, just really briefly, because I know you got to go, um, it's out of print right now. And uh, I just ah. had the rights reverted back to me from the publisher. So currently it's available on the Kindle store and whatever e-reader, e um, you know, situation that you can, you can drum up. But I'm going to do a little bit of a rewrite, which I was intending to do anyway. And uh, I'm actually going to be collaborating with both of my brothers on some of oh, cool. uh, our um, recollections of our dad and um you know so i was actually just talking to neil about that the other day so nice. uh, so that's that's upcoming and hopefully i'll get that done uh, over the next few months and get it to a new publisher and uh, um i'm hoping that uh we'll see that on bookstore shelves again awesome absolutely when that happens we'd love to have you back on and to talk absolutely. about the book yeah. and then what you what you changed in it and and stuff that'd be great yeah and and if you uh as soon as you get that new stuff, send it out because I'm not kidding. I really like your your last album, and even though it was seven yeah. years ago, it came out. And um, the, and the, you said the files with the artwork. I'm interested in that too. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll Luke and I will send you our album. Yeah, fantastic. Sure. I'd love to hear it. Oh, and you know, you're you're a fan of Stoner Rock. There's yeah. a series that um, the uh, that, that's going on right now. It's a live streaming series called Live in the Mojave Desert, and cool. it's Nick Oliveri's uh, new project, Stoner. Oh. He was the uh, bass player in um, in Queens of the Stone Age. Oh hell yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's yeah. I think that's like this Saturday. So if you 
Google Google Live in the Mojave Desert, you'll come up, come up with that. And it's actually really cool because it's not like right at Giant Rock, but it's very, very close to that that area. I'm Googling it right now. in any of those sessions? Those uh, live, you know, like I know Josh Halmy from Queens of the Stone Age, he worked with Nick, um, uh, yeah. you know, has, has put some of those together. Have you ever participated in any of those? I hear they're pretty wild. I haven't, but um, I, I know a lot of those guys just because I hung out in that uh, general neck of the woods and, you know, uh, yeah, really into the desert scene. So nice. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully everything picks back up soon. I mean, yeah. this year has been shit, but. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Astrid. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time, Astrid. Yeah. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Can we do your Yeah, absolutely. And and thank you. And uh, youngsters, definitely check out One Night at Giant Rock. It honestly has become one of my favorite albums this month. So definitely check that out. It's really, really good. Youngsters (laughs) is what we call fans of this podcast, Astrid. Fantastic. Okay. Which is weird, but... Yeah, but anyway, all right. We're weird, so... Bye, everybody. (laughs) Appreciate it. With the time you hear this, I won't be gone. I'm gonna sing it till the end. You won't have to listen. It's just gonna be... Once we were enemies. Once we brothers every time I hear your call I see it all now the centuries fly beside each other like weaving this melody under the skin would you let me giant rock I saw the ocean from the sky What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. (laughs) My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions, and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, 
You don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.